you got a Bible, grab it. If you don't, there's some in the seat back in front of you. My name is Dave, by the way. I'm one of the pastors. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, which is one of the four biographies of Jesus' life written um, by his followers to tell people about what he did, taught, uh, and that ultimately he died and then rose again from the grave. So, um, the Gospel of John. If you've got one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, one of these black ones, we're going to be on page 944. So, 944. Um, you can get there quick. Also, feel free to Google John chapter 4. We'll be reading almost the whole, whole chapter, so um, today's going to be a fun day. Uh, I just want to just, I know many of you have been praying for our Alpha course. Yesterday we had our Alpha weekend, which is, uh, we meet, usually meet on Thursday nights. Last night we got to meet for six hours uh, during the day, and we get to talk all about the Holy Spirit and do some spiritual mapping of our life story. Really a great time, really a great time. So thank you for your prayers. Continue to pray for those people on the Alpha Course who are uh, many, many encountering the message of Jesus, the story of Jesus uh, for the first time, many coming back um, and reconsidering after a time of way. And so lots of uh, breakthroughs last night as people um, encountered the nearness of God. God is not far off, but he comes near to us through the Spirit. So it's a really amazing time. So thank you for your prayers. I'm speaking of prayer. Why don't we pray now before we jump into our time of teaching? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this space. Uh, we thank you for these people. We thank you for these heaters, this warmth, this community. Uh, most of all, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you are not silent, that you have spoken, that you have revealed yourself, that we might know you uh, more and more as we study your word. Um, as we seek insight, as we run through the five C's of connection, conversation, consideration, and that through your spirit you convict of, of all truth, all righteousness, and all sin, that we might come to confess that you are Lord of all, that you are true truth, and that you are the forgiveness of sin. So um, we pray now that we would experience the full cycle this morning through our time of teaching and worship and community here. So we thank you. You've built this space, you've cultivated, uh, you've kept it alive that we might find life here. So we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, in John chapter 4, we'll be reading a, a story, you may have heard of it, it's about a Samaritan woman who encounters Jesus at a well. And uh, water's really important in the world, but we'll see how uh, Jesus is offering a different kind of water. And at first she doesn't quite understand what he's saying, but he's saying, yes, there's a type of water that relieves physical thirst, but there's another kind of water that relieves spiritual thirst. Jesus says, I freely offer you this other water. So we'll run the five C's. We'll see how, if, you, if, you, if, you're, if this is your first time or first couple, we're doing case studies now in a sermon series we're calling the five C's. Um, you can go back. We did five lectures, one on each C, connection, conversation, consideration, conviction, and confession, and how when you run, and, and, and maybe those are buzzwords for you if you're new. I just want to tell you, like, there's more to those words than you probably think, so I'd recommend going and listening um, to each of those lectures so you can understand, because when you run the full cycle, like this Samaritan woman will do today, it leads to life, and we want you to experience life. And we want God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. But you've got to run all five seas. You can't stop short. You can't do the first three, not do the last two. You can't do only the last two without doing the first three. You've got to do them all, okay? So uh, we're going to see in these case studies, uh, we've got this week and then one more, how the five seas play out in the pages of Scripture. So how 
the people who God has elevated and spotlighted say, hey, here's a model how they too are doing all five of the seas. So we get to see that today. Now, I love this account because I do love water, um, and I love wells in particular. Uh, You may have heard me talk about church planting. So seven years, almost seven years, six and a half years ago, we'll celebrate seven years in February, we launched Sedaris Church. Um, And what church planting is, is finding a place in the world that doesn't have a lot of access to this living water that Jesus is going to talk about today. And what you do is you find a couple of friends. Kurt and Augusta were some of those friends. That's why it's been seven years and we never invited Kurt to do it. Great. He did a great job today. Seven years, though, he's been around long-suffering for this moment. I hope he sticks around after it. You know, we just, you put the carrot out and you just see how long they'll last. So I hope that he doesn't leave. But we got together. Kurt and Augusta were the very first people. We said, come to a Bible study. We're going to start in our living room. They were the first two, and then we just kept asking other people, and we always say, bring your own shovel, and uh, we'll start digging. We'll start digging, and we'll dig, dig, dig until we see if we might find living water, and if we find it, then we can share it with others, and I believe we found living water at Sedaris, and then we've had more people come along over the years, and they've helped reinforce the well. So it's one thing to just sort of dig deep enough, but then you've got to build some permanent structure around it so it doesn't cave in on itself. That's what you guys are a part of. You're a part, if you're new with us, you could be a part of reinforcing this well so that for generation after generation, in this space, in God's good earth, people might find living water just like this woman in the story today finds it. That's what church planting is. And we hope to... We do. We fund other church plants that are hopefully finding living water, building, reinforcing, so that you can't go anywhere on this earth, whether it's in this country or any other country, and not find access to the well of life, which is found in Jesus Christ. So I love this story because it helps us remember what Jesus is promising. It's not just physical water, spiritual water. And that's what we hope to do in Seattle. So, so many reasons I love this parable. But God loves to, to dig new wells in places where they lack it. And Samaria, the region where this story takes place, they lacked access to the living God. And I'll explain the history of it why. And Jesus comes and he says, guess what? Now you can encounter God here. You don't even have to go all the way to Jerusalem. There's coming a time when you can just stay right where you're at and you can encounter the living God and experience the living Uh, the spiritual life that comes with knowing God. Seattle's one of those places where there there hasn't always been, and particularly right now, there isn't a lot of access to this living water. And what we'll see in this story is that there's um, hyper-religious people from Jerusalem that would have hated the fact that Jesus is offering living water to these Samaritans. These people who they abhorred, that they thought were just the depiction of uncleanness spiritually. Guess what? There's a lot of hyper-religious people in this country that think of Seattle the exact same way. What are you doing wasting your time offering living water to those people? They're unclean. They're not worth it. Jesus disagrees. I love this story. So when you invest in Sedaris with your talents, with your treasure, with your time, with your energy, with your prayer, 
you're investing in making sure this well doesn't collapse on itself. And that people after you will have access to this living water. You're doing the work of Jesus. We'll see that the work of Jesus is just this. So, I mentioned that um, in this story there's some historical background that you'll need to understand in order that you might pull everything out of the story. Um, It would have been obvious to the original readers of this who John's writing to. But for us, we don't quite get it. So, um, the first thing I want to point out is how men and women interacted at this time. It was very uncommon, frowned upon, looked down upon for a man and a woman to have a friendship if they weren't married or if they weren't close family. You just have to understand how odd it would have been for Jesus to be having this one-on-one conversation with a woman. So rare. Such a stark break from the cultural, traditional norms of the time. It's so hard for us, right? Because we, we live in this time where that's so common. But you just, you just, you got to try to get back there and realize how rare this would have been. Number two, Jews and Samaritans. So, Samaritans come from this region just north of Judea, or the, the nation of Israel at the time, um, called Samaria. Now, what's the history behind that? Um, some people know the name Samarit- Samaritan because they've heard of the Good Samaritan. Well, you've got to understand this to understand what's really being talked about in the parable of the Good Samaritan. But Samaritans weren't good. <laughs> That's the easiest way to say it. In the eyes of the Jewish people, they were evil. They were the opposite of good. And the reason for that is that um, at one point, all that land, the land of Samaria and the land of Judah, which is now at this time called Israel, um, all of it was part of one kingdom. It was King David who built this very healthy kingdom. And then his son Solomon came along and the kingdom was uh, together. Solomon had a rough run of it, lots of wisdom, but made some mistakes. And and it was Solomon's uh, children that began to fight amongst themselves. And over time, what happened is the, the north kingdom and the south kingdom broke apart and became two kingdoms. So they had two kings, um, a border, boundary. I mean, imagine if the Civil War had ended in a splitting of America. Like there was an actual distinction now. There was actually two kingdoms with two kings and all that animosity between the north and the south. And it was real, and it lasted, and it just got worse and worse. So then what happened is um, the north, because all of the religious center of life for all Jewish people was in Jerusalem, in the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom decided, we need to set up our own religious system, our own temple, have our own priests, all of this. Right? We, obviously, we've split now. So they set up their own religious system at a new mountain, not Mount Zion, which is what they called Jerusalem, but Mount Gerizim in the north. That's where they worshipped. And they built a a new religious system. And they even added some things uh, to it. You see how now, if you were from the southern kingdom, you'd start to look at that and think, well, that's unholy, that's unclean. That's not what it means to worship the one true God. You see that? So then they set that up. Then in around 720 B.C., what happened is the Assyrian Empire comes in and they conquer the northern kingdom. They don't yet conquer the southern kingdom, but they conquer the northern kingdom. They deport many, many people. They leave some behind. And the king of Assyria then 
imports into the land of the northern kingdom outsiders. So he says, you know, he, he literally moves new people in, says, I'm going to give you land, and they end up intermarrying with the Jews that remained. Okay? So now from the southerners' perspective, what's happening is these once Jewish people are now not fully Jewish. And they begin to call them half-breeds. Feel, you feel it? Do you imagine being called a half-breed for hundreds of years? This is not good stuff. The other thing that happened when these new people came in is there was assimilation of other religious practices. So the northern kingdom became a very pluralistic society. Whereas the southern kingdom, to some extent, remained worshipers of Yahweh. It wasn't that the people of the northern kingdom didn't worship Yahweh, it's just they allowed in the worship of other things. And so you see how this animosity began to grow. This is why when you were talking to a Jewish person or someone living in Israel, the southern kingdom, and they thought about Samaria, they immediately thought, unclean, unclean, unclean. The most important thing at the religion of the time was to be spiritually clean, to not associate. So if you would even talk to, touch, or associate with a Samaritan, you would be now spiritually unclean, unable to worship. That's how it was viewed by everyone to whom John's writing. You've got to try to get there when you see this story unfold, okay? So the third thing, just to, to be aware of, I just mentioned it there a second. If you interacted now with a Samaritan, it's not just, oh, you're, you're talking to an enemy. It's that you've literally sinned against God. That, that's how they would have viewed it. You are now a sinner because your reputation is that you hang out with sinners. So, all of this is going on. And what we'll see is um, this woman is not just a Samaritan, but she's a woman in her own village who had to go to the well at noon. Why does she have to go at noon? She goes at noon because most of the other women went in the early morning before it got hot or in the evening after the sun had gone down. She went at noon. Why would she do that? She's not just trying to get in better shape. It's because literally nobody wanted to be around her. They viewed her, even as the other Samaritans viewed her as a sinner. And we'll see why in just a second. So here's an outcast of outcasts, an outcast from the Jewish people, an outcast because of her gender, an outcast because of the lifestyle she lived. Nobody wants anything to do with her. So let's see what happens next. John chapter 4, verse 1. Here we go. Read it with me. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard what he was making and baptizing, or that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples were, he left Judea. That's the southern kingdom. You can think of that. And he went to Galilee. So this is where Jesus is from. He's from a town that, or an area that's part of Israel, but it's sort of like, maybe like you think of like Alaska, right? It's a part of the U.S., but you kind of got to go through Samaria to get there. So it's up north of Samaria. He's from a town called Nazareth in the region of Galilee. So he's got to get back up there. He feels like the Father's asking him to go back up to Galilee, but he's in the southern kingdom. 
So, here's what it says. He left Judea, went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. He had, this is so interesting. He had to travel through. Now, just pause here. Is he just saying, like, the only way to get to Galilee is to go through? John could be saying that. But it's interesting because this had to language, or the the term in the Greek, is actually used elsewhere in John's Gospel, speaking about God's providential plan. So it's, it's very likely, or most likely, I would say, that what John's trying to communicate is, in Jesus' eyes, he had to go through Samaria. Because there is another way. It's a longer walk, but you could go around Samaria, which very hyper-religious people did because they didn't even want to walk through the land of the Samaritans. But he had to. He felt compelled. The Father was compelling him to go. And at this point, he probably didn't even know why. He just says, I've got, we've got to go this way, guys. His disciples are following him. He says, we have to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journeys, sat down at the well. It was about noon. So, it's not like Jesus knew why he was going to this well. He was literally worn out. Again, a reminder of Jesus' full humanity. He was fully human and fully God at the same time. We'll see some of his godly attributes in just a second but he had a physical body just like ours that would get worn out from traveling in the heat so he stops at noon at jacob's well verse 7 a woman of samaria came to draw water give me a drink jesus said to her because his disciples had gone into the town to buy food so Jesus is now by himself at the well, and he asks this woman. It seems sort of harsh the way it's written here. I don't think, give me water. No, it's like, he's saying, could, I, could you please draw me some water? Because she had the ability to draw the water. He didn't. He's thirsty. He asks her, could you give me some water? How is it, she says, that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God, and who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. Whoa. This is interesting. The first thing I just want, I just want you to see is, She's a little sassy, <laughs> okay? She's a little sassy, okay? So remember, in this society, women didn't have the same power as men. And um, yet she's like, do you know what you're doing here? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman, and you're talking to me. So she's, she got a little bit sass. When you hear more of her story, it probably makes sense to you. But she... Um, She begins this conversation, right? So she's connected, first C, with Jesus. God has placed Jesus in her path. Sometimes it's not even our doing that we end up connecting with somebody. God just sort of compels us to be somewhere, and then he compels somebody else to be somewhere, and we connect. But there's a recognition. They're connected, and they begin a conversation. And she she holds her own. She goes back and forth, but she doesn't quite get what he's talking about. Look at what she says, verse 11. Sir, 
Very respectful, said the woman. You don't even have a bucket, (laughs) and the well is deep. So where do you think you're going to get this living water from, right? Love, I, I love this. I love this gal. <laughs> you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? See what she's, she's doing? She's like, who do you think you are? You think you're greater than our father Jacob? This is his well. He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Hmm. Battle of the wits. Verse 13, Jesus said, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well. A well of water springing up in him for eternal life. She doesn't get it the first time. Now Jesus is beginning to clarify. Remember we talked about what we do in conversation We begin to clarify in conversation what needs to be considered. So first she thinks we're definitely talking about water here because he asked me for water. And he's talking about this living water, but she's still confused. Then he said, okay, now this living water is equivalent to eternal life. See, he's beginning to clarify what needs to be considered. See what's happening? And we talked about that in the conversation series. Conversate, or conversation talk. Conversation is about clarifying in the mind what needs to be considered with the soul, the eternal part of you. Eternal life clearly needs to be considered with the eternal part of yourself, your heavenly body. Not just your physical earthly body, but your eternal heavenly body. Verse 15. Sir, <laughs> she says again, give me this water. And you're thinking, she's got it. She gets it. Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come here to draw water. (laughs) Right? She's super clever. She's like, if I had that eternal water that never went dry, I wouldn't even have to come out here in the middle of noon, bake myself. I'd just have it all the time. Jesus says, no, you're not quite getting it, but we're having more conversation. You see how it goes? Jesus doesn't give up on her. Now, something very interesting happens here because what? She clearly is not understanding that he's not talking about physical water. Like, it's hard, like something's blocking her ability to see the eternal nature of this conversation they're having. Have you ever had that experience? You're talking to somebody, it's like, they think we're talking about something very temporary and present, but we're really trying to talk about something much bigger, more abstract, <laughs> more eternal. Have you had that? I have that so many times. It's like, okay. How am I going to break through to get them to, to stop thinking on such a short time frame with just having water that doesn't run dry that you don't have to come back to the well? How do I get them to think about something actually more important than that, which is this idea of eternal life? So what does Jesus do? Very fascinating. Look what he says, verse 16. Go call your husband. What? Is he just being patronizing at this point? Is he saying, you're too dumb to get what I'm talking about? Is that what he's saying? Of course not. Of course that's not what he's saying. Why does he bring up her husband? So strange. You've got, you got to feel the weirdness of this, the way this thing's going. Go, go call your husband. What? Look what she says. He tells her, go call your husband and then come back here. And look what she says. Verse 17. I don't have a husband. She answered. 
She's actually said something truthful. Remember our talk last week with our, our solar system of truth. So Jesus doesn't shoot her down. Watch what he does. He acknowledged that she's clearly being deceptive. We'll see that in a second. But she has said something true. Remember we talked about that? The Apostle Paul does that. Anytime you hear truth, you can affirm it and then use that to now draw them into more truth. Okay? Out of love for them. It's exactly what Jesus says. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you have correctly said, I don't have a husband. He says, that statement is true. But he doesn't leave it there. What's he say next? Verse 18. For you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So she didn't currently have a husband. And so she was being deceptive to try to move past what Jesus was trying to do, which was to help her see that she was in deep need of something other than just physical water. She was in deep need of spiritual revival. Five husbands. And the man she's living with now isn't her husband. Well, no wonder she has to come at noon. She's got a reputation in the town. She can't move to another town. It didn't work like that back then. She's got a scarlet letter. She's seen a certain way. So she can't even associate with the other women of the town. They don't want to have anything to do with her. Now it's clear. It makes it even crazier that Jesus engaged in a, engaged in a conversation with her. You said it's, that's true, you don't have a husband. You've had five and now a sixth husband. Verse 19. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Okay. <laughs> What's happened? She gets it. She gets we're not talking about physical water. Now she gets it. We're talking about spiritual things. We're talking about eternal things. We're talking about salvation from sin. She gets it. Why? How do we know she got it? She keeps the conversation going about worship. And she's starting to say like, okay, I get that you're offering this eternal life, but I gotta just tell you like, the Jews, they hate us. They don't think we can have eternal life because we worship on this different mountain than they worship. So she gets it. He woke her up. How did he wake her up? It's very effective. He realized that he needed to go at the heart of where she felt guilt and shame. Because it's where she felt guilt and shame that was blocking her from engaging in the eternal conversation. Some of us, that's our story. We have so much guilt and shame that even when people try to have spiritual conversations with us or speak of eternal life, we just don't want to go there because we don't want to feel the guilt and shame. So Jesus, very strangely, just goes straight to it because he recognizes we're not going to get anywhere. And have love, he exposed, he says, you don't need to pretend with me. I know everything you've done. And guess what? I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving this conversation. I'm not walking away from you. You don't scare me. Your past doesn't scare me. I know it. Beautiful. And she gets it. So she begins to say, but wait, 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 wait. You Jews don't think that we really worship God because we don't worship in the same place. Look at what Jesus told her, verse 21. Jesus said, 
Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, we Jews. Because salvation is from the Jews. So he acknowledges truth. Salvation is from the Jews. Jesus Christ is Jewish. So he doesn't lie about it. He says that's true. Salvation is from the Jews. But, verse 23, an hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. (sighs) Wow. Jesus says you're living in the generation where you no longer have to go somewhere to worship. You can worship God from wherever you're at. You're going to live to see that, he's telling her. And it's going to be because of me. We'll find that out in just a second. Such a beautiful truth. Such an important truth. That now, because of what Christ has done and the sending of the Spirit, we don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. We worship right here. In all the fullness of what worshiping God means. It's a beautiful truth, a beautiful promise. And she was who God was revealing that to first. Okay, so then she asked. The woman said to him, verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. So again, she hasn't quite got it, who she's talking to. That's okay. That's totally okay. She accepts that there's time coming when you don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. That excites her. But she doesn't understand quite why. Look what Jesus said. Verse 26, Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the reason you don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. Guess what that is? That's the thing she needs to consider. So all this conversation that went on was to get to this point. This is the thing that she needs to consider. That the person standing in front of her is actually her Savior. Her Savior from what? Everything, (laughs) including the worst parts of who she is that she tried to hide from him. And probably she tries to hide from everyone. Jesus says, consider that. Am I he? He says, I am. But then he says, you must consider for yourself. Now, so interesting what happens next. Now she knows what to consider. Is Jesus the only thing that can save her from her past of five husbands and, and, and the adultery that she's now living in with somebody that is not her husband? What is it? Could it be? Could it be true? It's been set. The stage has been set. She knows what to consider. She knows she needs to consider it from an eternal perspective. So what does she do? Or So then what happens next? This is, the, this is the touch point, okay? It doesn't say it in the text, but Jesus is saying, consider, I am the one who can explain everything. I am the only one that can save you from your past. I am the way to eternal life. And then, verse 27. Just then, the disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking 
with a woman. <laughs> so it's not even, the, the thing that they're most amazed is not that she's a Samaritan, it's talking to a woman, what's he doing? Yet no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? <laughs> so much just happened right there. First thing that happened, very strangely, is finally they've gotten to the point of consideration. And then the disciples show up, and what you'd think would happen is Jesus would be like, go, 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 go away. I'm about to get there. She's about to come on into the kingdom. Jesus doesn't say that. Why doesn't he say that? Because the consideration is set. He knows that she knows exactly what to consider. And so he's not worried that the disciples come in and awkwardly interrupt them. He knows. The conversation is, is done. Consideration has begun. So it's not a distraction. And what we might have here in the pages of Scripture, as the disciples arrive back, as Jesus lets this consideration bake, is perhaps history's most awkward pause. You've got to get into the moment. This awkward pause. Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman who's meeting at noon so everybody would know why she would be doing that. The disciples show up. They don't even like ask anything. That's what it says. They're just like, Jesus doesn't say anything else. He doesn't relieve their tension. He doesn't relieve the woman's tension. He just lets it bake. Isn't that cool? Silence is okay. Let it bake. The wheels are turning. The disciples are, what's going on? The woman is now considering what she needs to consider. Is this the Messiah? And it's like history's most awkward pause. I love it. I don't know how long it lasted. I want to think it lasted like five minutes. And Jesus is just sitting there. Just At this point, I picture him with water, just, hmm, just looking around. And everyone's like waiting for him, because clearly he has the most authority in the room, right? They're just waiting for him to speak. And then what happens? Conviction sets in, right? Clearly in the awkward pause, conviction set in. She's considering, and then conviction sets in. The Holy Spirit reveals to her Jesus isn't lying. How do we know that? What does she do? The woman left her water jar and went into town. And, and I think it's fair to say she ran into town. She didn't wait. Once, the awkward pot, once it clicked, she's gone. And she left her, one of her probably most valuable possessions, her water jar. Just left it there. Because she found something way more valuable. And she runs into the city. Conviction has set in. The fourth sea. And she runs straight into the city. That the, the village that abhors her and tells her, don't come to the, to the well when we are there. And she runs straight to him. Just think about that. Come and see, she says. A man who told me everything I ever did. This could be the Messiah. She obviously knows it is. But she's telling him, you need to consider this man too. She's doing what? Confessing. She finishes the cycle. Now, I just need to point out for you the immediacy 
of her evangelistic confession. This is so important to what's going to happen next. How many months did she wait between her conviction and her confession? Does does, Does it seem like she waited like one month? Or like two months? Maybe three months, make sure she's got it right. Four months? No. She goes immediately. This is going to be very important in just a second. Because look at the narrative. The narrative's about to shift to the disciples now become sort of the center for a second. Look what it says. In the meantime, actually, I missed verse 30. Um, <laughs> they left the town and made their way to Jesus. Her confession was effective. And we'll, he'll pick up that part of the story in just a second. But before he does, he gives us this like aside. In the meantime, he says, which is like, these two things are happening simultaneously. So you need to have like dual screen, watch both happening. And you need to ask yourself, which one is more full of life, eternal life, and the power of God? That's what he wants you to do. Put them both up on the screen and watch what's happening. You have a woman running as fast as she possibly can to people that hate her and abhor her and think she's a sinner and telling them, I want you to experience what I just experienced. I love you enough to do that to you even though you don't love me. And then you've got to look at, in the meantime... What was happening as people were, as the disciples were now, their awkward pause was over and Jesus begins to teach them. This is the other thing that was happening. The disciples then kept urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. Rabbi, while you were here saving this woman's eternal soul, we were getting you lunch and you should eat it. And Jesus is just like, you guys have no idea. People 2,000 years from now are going to be talking about this story, and you're talking about lunch. Who's thinking about lunch right now? Because to be honest, I used to sit in church and just be thinking about what am I have for lunch. This story's about you. Jesus is trying to teach you something, and you're thinking about lunch. These guys, but they're like, that was their task that Jesus gave them was to go get lunch. So they're like, we did it, Jesus. Are you happy with us? <laughs> Jesus is like, you're missing it, guys. They're talking about lunch. Jesus has just saved this woman's soul, the woman that thought, no one thought was savable. They just totally missed it. So Jesus teaches them. Because he's like, he doesn't get rid of them. He never gets rid of the disciples. You'd think he would if you read these closely. It's like, they just annoyed him so much. Like, I could get 12 more pretty easily. So then he says, okay. Jesus says, verse 20, or 32. He says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. <laughs> Again, he's like, we're living in the eternal world here, guys. Something eternal's happening, and you're talking about physical lunch. He's like, I don't need that right now. Something amazing is happening. Put up the dual screen. Do you know what's happening right now? What this woman is doing? They don't, of course. They just can't fathom. Even though they've had that same conviction. <laughs> we just forget. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This is so important. And to finish his work. It seems like a strange thing to be saying at this moment. This is what Jesus told them. Verse 35. Don't you guys say, so he's talking to the disciples, don't you guys say there are still four more months, then comes the harvest? Isn't that what you guys say? Which is what like, you gotta wait a bit, you gotta kinda let the plants grow. That's what you guys say, right? Look what he says next. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields. 
because they are ready for the harvest. He's saying we don't have to wait four months. Then look what he says, verse 36. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life. What's he talking about? Now, you, probably, you may have heard this text out of, out of the context of the woman at the well. I had. I didn't even realize this is where it came from until I was studying this week. And I was like, whoa. I think he's talking about the woman. I think the woman is the reaper. What is he talking about? Jesus sowed the seed of conversation, the good news about the Messiah, that he is the Messiah, that he's coming, and that you can be forgiven of all your sin. And she reaped that harvest in her own life already. Why do I think that? The reaper is already receiving pay. (laughs) She's already receiving that eternal water. That living water. She's already becoming transformed into her, her eternal self. She's receiving her pay. It's beautiful. Like as soon as you receive... The gift of God, you begin to grow into your eternal self. You don't wait until you die or Jesus comes back. It starts right now. Like the moment this new self is being birthed, right? So you, you've been reborn, but a baby doesn't stop growing. You keep growing. That's, that's what we talk about. Until the new self conquers the old self. And, and he's saying she's already receiving her pay. She's already receiving her power. And then then what does he say? And gathering fruit for eternal life. What? She's receiving her pay. She's being transformed into the image and likeness of Christ, into her eternal glory. And not only that, she's gathering fruit for eternal life. What the heck does that mean? This is what I think it means. In the Bible it talks about uh, there's many crowns stored up for you in heaven or, or, or store your treasure in heaven rather than on earth where rust and mold and dust and moths can destroy. We're not talking about physical things. You won't have a bigger house in heaven or more money or better food. The eternal fruit, or the fruit of eternal life is this. When you're standing in God's kingdom and somebody else walks into that room and it's somebody that you got to share the gospel with, that you got to cultivate the good news of Jesus in their life, that you got to model for them who Jesus really was, and they walk in, that's like the sweetest fruit you'll ever taste. That's the fruit of eternal life. That's the crown that's stored up for you in heaven. That's the treasure. Guess what this woman was doing? Dual screens at the same time these disciples were talking about lunch. Okay, think about it. Lunch. And she's biting into the sweet fruit of eternal life. She's sharing the gospel with people that she'll get to see in eternity on the shores of the kingdom of God. You see what I'm saying? They're talking about lunch. I mean, I don't care how good that pastrami is. That ain't the fruit of eternal life. That's what he's saying. He's like, guys, you're totally missing it. Just like she missed it at first. 
So he's showing them the same care and conversation as, she showed to, as he showed to the woman. Guys, you're, you're talking about lunch, and she's gathering fruit for eternal life. See that? Split screens. What life do you want? Jesus continues. So she's, she's gathering fruit, or he's talking, he's not specifically saying her, but he's saying the reaper is already receiving pay the gather, and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. Now he's flipped back. Who's the sower and the reaper? He knows she's coming back with the entire village. <laughs> Guess what he's going to do? He's going to rejoice with her. Do you want to rejoice with the sower? They get to rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and one reaps. I sent you to reap. Now he's speaking to the disciples. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored, and you have benefited from their labor. So now he's being a bit like, he's like, in about 15 minutes, you're going to understand what I just said. Because now the reaper, the woman, has become the sower. And guess who's about to walk into the picture? I don't know how big the village is, but a whole gaggle of people ready to find out if Jesus is the Messiah. That's what's going on. You see that? And they're going to get to reap (laughs) that harvest. And he's just saying, like, just understand what's going on. Well, you guys are talking about lunch. I've been doing something. And this woman's been partnering with me, and we're going to rejoice together. And then you're going to get to reap the harvest. Just remember Remember her and how she didn't wait four months and how she went right away. She wasn't worried about even drinking or eating. She just went because she had a power other than her own. So look at what happens. Verse 39. Now, now we've, dual screen is off. Now we're back with the woman. Now many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of what the woman said. When she had testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked, that's to Jesus, they asked Jesus to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said, since we have now heard for ourselves and know this really is the Savior of the world. <laughs> Hopefully the disciples got it at that point. Wow. They had no idea what was going on. They were thinking about lunch. And God's doing this amazing, eternal thing. And the Samaritans get it. They realize this is crazy. This isn't just the Savior of the Jews. This is the Savior of the whole world. Praise be to God. Most of us in this room are not Jewish. We're more like the Samaritans. But Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. And he uses a Samaritan woman to begin his harvest. I just love it. I just love it. It's just, you just can't get any better than this, guys. Like the, good, the gospel is such good news. Like, don't forget that. Like, she wasn't so worried about now Jesus knows all of her sins or feeling convicted or guilty. She already knew that. 
She's already living in her shame. She was already living in her guilt. Jesus isn't bringing that. He's bringing freedom from that. That's the good news. Like, so don't get upset when people bring to light sin in your life because it has to come to light before Jesus can deal with it. It's good news. It's only good news. She gets that. So she runs to the city to tell people. You know the only people that don't get how good the news is? People that don't really think that they sin. She is so far beyond thinking she's not a sinner that she can receive the good news for what it is. Good. I just love that. So she runs the five C's and this process just flows itself into another five C. She connects with Jesus. She has a conversation with Jesus. She considers. She's convicted. Then she goes and confesses and her confessions leads to other people being connected to Jesus who then go connect other people to Jesus. Do you see that? It's just, it's a, it just keeps going, the process. That's how Jesus takes over the world. And that's good news that he takes over the world. Because <laughs> his rule is one of mercy and grace and goodness and forgiveness. That's the fruit of the five C's. I just love this story. It just brings it out so perfectly. So two implications to close. One is this. One of the barriers to receiving God's grace in your life, just like it was for the Samaritan woman, is thinking that God doesn't already know your sin. Like, see how she tried to hide it? And when he just reminds her, like, I already know. Yeah, she's pretty impressed, like, oh, this must be a prophet. But when she really gets it, what she realizes is, this is good news. He already knows everything, and yet he's still talking to me. So some of you don't talk to God because you think if he really knew you, he wouldn't want to talk to you. This story reminds us it's the opposite. It's because he knows everything that he wants to start a conversation with you. So don't let that be a barrier to think like, oh, I can't get too close to God or else then he'll know. He knows. I mean, just, I mean this part of the story is so wonderful. Like, At first she might have been thinking, like when he started talking about the husband, she's like, He's probably like Sherlock Holmes. He's deducing that I'm here at noon because maybe there's something in my past and then he sees that I'm kind of sassy. So maybe he thinks like, but he doesn't, he, he, says, he says, you've said it right that you don't have a husband. And if he had just said, you've had husbands in the past or the man you're now with is not your husband, then she might have been like, oh, you're just sort of guessing that. Like you're one of those you know, guys on TV that can like guess people in the crowd like, I sense somebody here is like not having a good day. Oh, yes, yes, not having a good day. Okay, and it's probably because of some relationship. And that's right, I had a feeling, you know. She's like, no, that's not what's happening. He, he just goes straight to her, he goes, you've had five. And she's like, he knew I had five? Maybe somebody in the town told him. And then he goes, and the man you're now sleeping with is not your husband. And she's probably like, Nobody knew that. (laughs) You're like, you knew the exact number. So Jesus knows it all. Which brings me to my second point. She'd been looking so hard for love her whole life. Like, why would you get married five times? Men aren't that great. Like, she's wanting love. She, She wants love. She wants somebody to love her. So she's willing to get into these relationships with these guys 
Five times marriage didn't work. One time, non-marriage, acting as if they're married, didn't work. How many is that? Six. Who's Jesus? He's the seventh man. The perfect man. Who sees everything that she's ever done. Knows what it would mean if people saw him talking to her and yet doesn't blink an eye. Looks right into her eyes, tells her, I love you. And I will give you something even if you don't give me anything else. That's grace. He loves me? And he knows everything I've done, how dirty I am, how unlovable I am, why does he keep looking me right in the eye? <laughs> no man ever looks me right in the eye. What's up with this guy? Could this be the Messiah? It is. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's one of my favorite stories. If you've never had that experience, just make sure God knows. He knows everything you've ever done. He does want you to bring it to him and admit and ask him for that living water. Receive it. And then go and tell everybody that you can tell about what this God has done for you in his son Jesus. Bring that water to the rest of the world. Physical water, thirst will come back. This living water, spiritual thirst will never come back.